a great song to introduce our new series uh, this morning. We're going to be talking about if these walls could talk over the next few weeks. Now, imagine what the walls of your residence would say after these weeks of being sheltered at home. Just what kind of walls uh, and story would they, would they tell? I mean, would your, would your story read like a Jane Austen novel, kind of uh, prim and proper with a quaint storyline, or would your walls tell a story that belonged in a King and King, Stephen King horror story? Or if your walls could talk, would there be laughter or tears, contentment or restlessness, serenity or anxiety, or, or some combination of all of those? If your walls could talk, would you be okay with them being interviewed by Jimmy Fallon on late night TV? Or would you prefer that the testimony of your walls be kept as top secret? What would we learn about each other if the walls of our homes could talk? Donald Trashta Jr. spotted a gap in the false wooden wall in his deceased father's shop, and he pulled it apart. Imagine his surprise when he discovered that behind that false wall was an original Norman Rockwell painting, Breaking Home ties. Wow, now that would make for quite an inheritance, don't you imagine? And it prompts some questions. What was dad doing with an original Norman Rockwell painting hidden behind a false wall? Uh, I enjoy visiting historic homes. Elsie and I have walked through the halls of Washington's Mount Vernon and Jefferson's Monticello, Truman's Independence, Missouri home, and Lincoln's Springfield, Illinois residence. And all of them hold just this eerie feel because when you think of all the things those walls could tell about those famous characters from American history. Got me to thinking about all the lives and the various places of great events in biblical history. What would tent walls or palace walls or prison walls tell us? What could we learn from the walls of old wells, old courtyards, and old tombs? Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to discuss those things and explore biblical characters in different walled settings to gain a unique perspective on our own lives. Because people, you know, haven't changed much in all these many generations. So we're going to begin with tent walls. Now, our family's not really been a camping family through the years, but I have the best memories of when our family went to family camp in Mexico to help build homes. Uh, We were down there a couple times, and we lived in tents during that time, and I have a lot of fond memories of those tents. Imagine for a minute if all the tents in Scripture could talk, and there are some great tent stories. There's a story in Judges chapters 4 and 5 where the Israelites were under attack, and the enemy commander, a man by the name of Sisera, flees at the end of the battle, takes refuge in a tent that was owned by a family, and the lady of the tent was there that day, helped give him some food, and then when he laid down to take a rest, she took a tent peg and drove it right through his temple, giving victory ultimately to the Israelites. And of course, there's Paul and Priscilla and Aquila who were all tent makers. Imagine the stories their tents could tell. Or there is the tent, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, that place of sacrifice and worship. And of course, the Jewish people gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of tabernacles or the feast of tents 
every year. So tents and tent walls play an important part in biblical history. But this morning we're going to take a look at one of the early characters of Scripture whose tent dwelling has a lot to tell us. We're going to begin with the tent of Abraham. Now in the book of Genesis, 11 chapters cover the creation story, the events of the flood, and the history of the world from the beginning of time up to Abraham. No less than 19 generations are covered in these 11 chapters. But in the contrast to that, 14 chapters of Genesis are devoted exclusively to the life of this one man, Abraham. Some have suggested, and rightly so, that next to Jesus Christ, no one exceeds Abraham in biblical importance. God chose Abraham to be the father of a unique people, the Hebrew people, set apart by God for a purpose that is greater than any other purpose, and it was to ensure the bringing of the Savior into the world. When God called Abraham, God promised him that his descendants would be as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. The only problem was that Abraham was getting up in years and had no children. God assured him that he would provide. God would provide. So Abraham had the promise that someday he'd have an heir. Abraham's story is filled with ups and downs, spiritual triumphs and spiritual failures, steps of faith, and plots of human intervention. But through it all, Abraham became the father of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 summarizes Abraham's life like this, beginning in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Now what does this mean for us? Well, when it comes to the matter of living our lives by faith, Even we Gentiles are spiritual descendants of Abraham. Romans chapter 4 verse 6 reads like this. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. And by faith, we lean on him. So I'll ask the question again, what does all of this mean for us? We're going to take a look at briefly Abraham's life. And there's some things I think that jump out with regard to this faith walk. The first thing is that faith results in separation. Let's take a brief look at, at the journey that Abraham Uh, enjoyed. He was living in the land of Ur with his family when God came to him with this challenge. Abraham, like us, had experienced life's typical ups and downs, pluses and minuses. His brother had died. His wife couldn't have children. 
He was living in a land that worshipped pagan idols. But God invited Abraham to leave everything, follow him, and become the recipient of this wonderful promise. Sounds sort of familiar to the promise that Jesus made to Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And by the way, God still invites us to follow him. And God still promises us great blessings when we do. Now, what's so special about Abraham that God would call him? Well, nothing really that I can find. The focus here is not on Abraham's irresistible character. The focus here is on God's amazing grace. At that point, Abraham was your general run-of-the-mill pagan idolater. But God gave him this challenge and a promise. Genesis 12:1 says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and I will make you a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and curse whoever, uh, and, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all, all of the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Leave everything. Leave everything. Leave your homeland. Separate from all that is familiar. Now, Ur was known as a land of abundant food and vegetation. Abraham had no idea to where he was headed or what this new place would be like. But he was to leave. Leave your people. Separate from your past and your heritage. Leave your father's household. Separate from love and acceptance. Now, that would have been the toughest part of it. But it was necessary. His idolatrous family environment would have been detrimental to this new spiritual journey and his spiritual growth. This is his first test of faith. Abraham, do you trust me enough to leave everything and follow me, says the Lord. Well, life brings separation. You know that. I mean, that's just part of of everyday living in this world. Marriage begins with leaving. Book of Genesis, and Jesus echoed it again in the Gospels, says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. Somebody wise summarized it into three words, leave and cleave. Graduation leads to separation. When college or careers begin, the family relationship is never quite the same. It's still wonderful, it's still beautiful, but it's never quite the same. Death comes to a loved one, and we're separated from that person for the remainder of our lives in this world. And following Jesus, that's separation too. It means separation from loyalty to this world and its philosophies. By by leaving or separating this morning, I, I don't mean rejection. You don't reject your family when you marry. You don't reject your home when you graduate. You don't reject your loved one even though death has separated you. And you don't move to Mars when you start following Jesus. It does mean that you leave behind your dependence upon your family or your allegiance to the things of this world. Our faith journey is learning how to depend upon God. Sometimes marriages fail because one or both cannot give up their dependence upon their families, their parents. I've also seen widows and widowers who tried to freeze time because they just could not move on after the loss of their spouse. And even in Scripture, folks, we see those who couldn't leave the world behind to depend upon God. 
the rich young ruler, the apostle Judas, a disciple named Demas, and many others. So what does Abraham do? He packs up his family tent and heads west. But he also takes Terah, his father, and his father's household. By the way, Terah is also Sarah's father, Abraham's wife. Same dad, different mothers, so Abraham and Sarah were half-siblings. This was before the law prevented such marriages. And Abraham also took his nephew Lot and his family. This was his first big mistake. They arrived at a place called Haran, and someone in the clan said, close enough. (laughs) And so they unpacked their tents, and they spent the next 15 years there. Not close to Canaan yet, not close to the place where God was calling him, but they stopped for 15 years. You know what? I think too sadly many of us get stuck halfway between the past and the promised blessings of God. God challenges us to a higher standard, but we often reach our heron and we say, close enough, and we settle. When close enough becomes good enough, we're in deep trouble, folks. Our lives, our homes, our marriages, our careers never become all they could be if we stop short of following the Lord completely. But I'm telling you, close enough is never good enough in our walk of faith with the Lord. Here's something else that we see in Abraham's life, and that is weak faith results in lifelong consequences. Abraham's nephew Lot was just a royal pain. Lot took the best pasture land. Lot had to be rescued by Abraham because he got caught up with with bad people. And Lot eventually gave up shepherding and moved to the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and made that home. And when God brought judgment on those cities, Lot's family had to be taken out of those cities, kicking and screaming. Mrs. Lot just couldn't couldn't stand the thought of leaving her suburban neighborhood and was reduced to a pile or a pillar of salt in the Holocaust that took place because she looked back longing for her city more than for her God. It was a kinky family relationship, to be sure, that only got worse because of their weak faith. It's a tragic story that never would have happened if Abraham had followed God's direction and left all of his extended family back in Ur. Abraham also struggled with a weak faith at one point. When he and his family fled to Egypt to avoid a famine, Abraham told Sarah to lie about being his wife and and instead claimed to be his sister so Pharaoh wouldn't kill him in order to take Sarah for his own. Never mind God's promise. Abraham was moving with weak faith. Now, I know what you're thinking. You say, yeah, but that that really wasn't a lie. Sarah was his half-sister. Let me tell you something. The intent was to deceive. And even though there was a shred of truth in it, anytime the intention is to deceive, it's a lie. We can justify anything if we're not careful. Well, things didn't go as planned. (laughs) Pharaoh didn't kill Abraham, but he did go ahead and take Sarah. Now the tent is empty, and Abraham's trying to figure out a way to get out of this one. But God revealed to Pharaoh what was going on. Abraham gets kicked out of Egypt, is reprimanded by a pagan king who at this point shows more faith in God than Abraham did. 
All of which, again, could have been avoided if he had not forgotten to trust God's promise. A few years later, not having learned their lesson well, Sarah pleads with Abraham to take her Egyptian handmaiden, a lady by the name of Hagar, as a second wife so she could have a child and then Sarah would raise that child, sort of a a surrogate mother. And this was not uncommon in that day and time. But it was, once again, a lack of faith in God's promise. By the way, where do you suppose Sarah got an Egyptian handmaiden? May I suggest that Hagar may have been a gift from Pharaoh during her short stay in the palace? Had Abraham trusted God during the famine and stayed away from Egypt, this wouldn't have been an option either. And this story would be absent from Scripture. Weak faith decisions always have consequences. Hagar becomes pregnant, and she becomes condescending. Sarah becomes hurt, indignant, and and suddenly that tent becomes way too small. When mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And to add misery to the situation, Abraham tries to duck his responsibility. This was your idea, Sarah. You do what you want to do with Hagar. I suspect Abraham spent a lot of time outside the tent in those days. When Papa ain't happy, nobody cares. Arrogance and humiliation, pride and bitterness. Sarah blames Abraham. Abraham uh, abdicates his responsibilities. Sarah takes out her frustration on Hagar. Hagar fears and then flees. I mean, this is a soap opera in a tent. She returns later. Ishmael is born nine months later. But the joy at the birth of a son turns to sorrow for the bitterness that led up to that birth and all of the circumstances. Ishmael would later eventually become the father of 12 rulers who are the ancestors of the Arab nations today. And of course, Abraham is also the father of the Jewish nation, and there has been unrest in Abraham's family for 4,000 years. We are all guilty of weak faith decisions. And the consequences of those choices often follow us for the rest of our lives, sometimes longer, sometimes ensuing generations. When God provides us with direction in life, never doubt it is in our best interest. When we fail to follow, we always pay a price. But here's something else. Lasting faith results in joy. In Genesis 21, 1 through 3, this is what we read. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son that Sarah bore him. God keeps his promises. And the tent is eventually filled with laughter. By the way, that's exactly what the name Isaac means, laughter. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old at Isaac's birth. Why do you suppose God waited so long? I think it was to erase any doubt of God's supernatural intervention. Had God allowed Ishmael to become the child of the promise, Abraham could have boasted that it was something that he had accomplished himself. But at the age of 190, there could be no question that the God of the universe had intervened. 
You see, years before, God had introduced himself to Abraham with this name, El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. It is one of the most powerfully potent names for God in Scripture. It not only means the all-powerful one, but it also means the all-sufficient one or the all-bountiful one. It is the picture of a God who sustains in all circumstances by pouring out his blessings over and over again on those whom he loves. And I want you to know this morning that the all-sufficient God will support you during times of failure, will sustain you during times of loss, will protect you during times of fear, and will comfort you during times of sorrow. And in all of it, he will give you a reason to laugh. He is El Shaddai, the Almighty, who promises to go with us every step of the way. So when you pick up your tent and you follow him, he will bless you with a lasting joy. Just ask Abraham and Sarah. They'd tell you, do it God's way, because great is his faithfulness. One last thought that grows out of this story Not only is it God's faithfulness, but it's the growth of faith in Abraham. And and here's what I want you to remember, and that is that true faith, true faith results in sacrifice. Now, here's something we need to remember about God's promises. Sometimes the, the hope of the promise lasts longer than the reality of the promise. Abraham spent the bulk of his life in the anticipation of God's promise, and far less in the reality of that fulfillment. He spent a hundred years waiting for the promise to come true, not that many years afterwards as a father of Isaac. And all along, God reassured Abraham that he hadn't forgotten the promise, even though it took a century to fulfill. And then some 15 to 20 years after Isaac's birth, the unthinkable happened. God asked Abraham, to sacrifice his son, his only son of the promise, as an act of worship. By this time, however, Abraham's faith is solid. It has grown so much that Abraham does not doubt, nor does he try to take things into his own hands. He's learned to trust God even when God's commands don't make sense to him. And sometimes God's commands don't make sense from our perspective. I honestly believe that Abraham had concluded that if he did what God asked him to do, that God would raise Isaac from the dead and keep his promise. That's how far Abraham had come in his journey of faith. Now, maybe you remember the story. It's a three-day story. It's a three-day journey to the mountains of Moriah where God told him to take Isaac for the sacrifice. It's a father and his only son of the promise. Isaac himself carries the wood on his back that would be used for the sacrificial fire. They are going uphill. Sound familiar? Three days, an only son carrying his own cross, a rugged hill. When Isaac asked his father about the sacrifice, Abraham simply said, God will provide. Through all of these years, he had learned the promise that God indeed provides. That's true faith. 
The son is bound and laid on the wood, which, by the way, is an act of submission on Isaac's part. A 20-year-old could certainly overpower a man who was past 100 years old. But just as Abraham raised the knife, God intervened and stopped him. And it was then that they heard a rustling in the, in the brush behind them, and they turned and they saw a ram that was caught in the thicket. It was the substitute for Isaac. God had indeed provided. Non-believers often derisively mock God through this story as, as being a bloodthirsty, cruel God, but they have lifted the story out of its context and have created something bitter out of what is supposed to be truly beautiful. God never intended Abraham to go through with the sacrifice, but the obedience became a demonstration of complete trust in God, a true walk of faith. God had never commanded nor desired human sacrifice on the part of worship. He only sanctioned one in all of history, and it was his only son who became that sacrifice for us. By the way, that lonely hilltop on Mount Moriah where Abraham took Isaac for the sacrifice later became the location of one of two possible places. That either was the mountaintop on which the temple was later built, which through its sacrificial system pointed others to God's salvation, or that mountaintop became the grisly hill of Golgotha the place of the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Either way, the picture is inescapable. At that moment, God was giving Abraham a glimpse into his story. And at that moment with Abraham and Isaac on that mountaintop, God affirmed his promise. In Genesis twenty-two eighteen, we read, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. In the life of Abraham, God told the story of the ages. A promise, anticipation, a birth, a life, a sacrifice. It is the story that never grows old. And by the time Abraham reached this point, he was standing firmly on the rock of faith. Oh, folks, no matter what happens in life, stand firm on the rock of ages, on El Shaddai, God Almighty. Let this be the cry of your soul for every day forward. I will stand upon this rock. May my hope be found on no other ground. I will stand upon this rock. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the story of Abraham in Scripture. His life, his growth in faith, and everything that happened to him and through him that has made possible our salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be a people who walk by true faith, not a weak faith, not, not a faith that is wishy-washy, but a true, lasting faith that you might fill our lives with joy and hope and assurance through Jesus Christ. Lord, in these uncertain times, our faith in you is the only certainty upon which we can depend. May your blessing be on us as we serve you with true, genuine faith. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. <music>